I invite you to open your Bibles or click in your Bibles, as the case might be, to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32, if you're using the Red Pew Bible, I think it's on page 32, Genesis chapter 32. It's been a few weeks since we have been in Genesis and been looking at Jacob. I'll remind you of what's been happening Jacob has finally made his decision, and a decision prompted by God, that he should leave Haran, leave the land of his father-in-law, Laban, and that he should flee back to Canaan. Remember that while he was in Haran, in, uh, in Laban's household and working for Laban, that he was able to gather a great amount of wealth, that he gathered to himself uh, two wives and two concubines, and at least 12 children. Actually, the truth is that Genesis uh, chapter 46 reveals that he had 33 total children, and our best guess is that quite a few of them actually were born while they were in Haran. We have the names of 12 of them. Laban treated him badly, treated his own daughters badly, and so Jacob finally made the decision to flee, and his daughters supported that. And He left Haran, Laban pursued him, they arrived at a peace treaty, a peace deal, and Laban returned around, turned around, went back home to Haran, and now Jacob is continuing back to Canaan. But the reason that he had left Canaan in the first place was not to go visit his uncle Laban or to find a wife, although that was what was said outwardly. The reason he had left Canaan in the first place, you may recall, was that he had angered his brother Esau. You remember Esau? He was the gifted hunter. He was the one that was highly capable with weapons of killing. And when Jacob angered Esau, Esau threatened to kill him. In fact, Esau swore a vow, an oath, that he would kill his brother Jacob. And that's why Jacob fled. And his time in Haran, while he's been away, has kept him safe, but now he's going back and he must face Esau. And we're going to see his fear on practically every line of this chapter, his concern about that looming confrontation with his brother Esau. What is going to come of that? And so that's where we pick up, reading Genesis chapter 32. Jacob, one other comment. Um, I have sometimes stopped on these longer passages to, uh, to explain things along the way. I am not going to do that this time, but rather explain it all after. However, I will perhaps read a few of the words differently than what's printed in your Bible. In some cases, I'm going to translate things that are not translated. In other cases, I'm going to leave untranslated things that are translated. I hope this will bring out a little of the themes that are there that are sometimes lost in English. Jacob went on his way, and the messengers of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, 
I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord, in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and herds and camels, into Mahanaim, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Yahweh who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become Mahanaim. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will lift my face. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives and two female servants and his eleven sons and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Trickster. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be 
trickster, but God-fighter. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of, of the place God's face, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him, and he passed God's face place, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of God. It is the only inerrant rule for faith and for practice. We must know it if we are going to know what to believe and how to live. Let's seek his help in unpacking this passage. Spirit of God, this is a mysterious passage. Strange things happen here. Angels meet travelers. Strangers attack in the night. And a man wrestles with God and is not defeated. Help us to understand this passage. Reveal its meaning to us. That we would be drawn closer to you and know you better as a result of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All of us wrestle with things at some point in our lives. I can remember one of the most striking for me. I was 22 years old. I had just graduated from Christian college. I had taken a job as a science teacher at a small Christian school, Christian high school in central Indiana. And though I was trained in science because I had gone to a Christian college, they decided I could also teach Bible. And so I was teaching a Bible class. And we stumbled upon the topic that I now understand to be controversial in the wider church. But at the time, 22 years old, to me, it was just kind of a straightforward, obvious thing. God is sovereign, and he's in charge. I was called a Calvinist. I was scolded. I was yelled at. And it caused quite a stir. In fact, so much so that there were special board meetings to see if I was fit to continue to teach in the school because I dared to say that God would choose whom he would save. Now, I was right about the doctrine. My problem was how I was handling the wider situation. The principal of the school, who by God's grace was himself a Presbyterian, and I was not back then, called me into his office and sat me down and said, Scott, you've got to drop it. We're a non-denominational school. This is a very denominational issue. You've got to let it go. And of course, I was 22, which means I knew everything. And I said to him, but I'm right. And he said, I don't care. You've got to drop it. And the next hour in his office was so difficult for me. I wrestled with what to do. It brought me literally to the point of tears. The the 
anger and frustration welling up inside of me was overwhelming. And I was confronted with a difficult choice. What was I going to do? I was wrestling with authority. I was wrestling with a boss who had been put over me by God, who had the right to tell me to knock it off and not talk about that the way I was talking about it. Was I going to submit? You know, Paul reminds the church in Rome in chapter 13 of the book of Romans that anyone who rebels against earthly authority rebels against God. While I was wrestling with my principal and with those board members and with the parents that were upset at me, in truth, I was wrestling with God. Do I really have to submit to this authority? Do I really have to do what I'm told? This, of course, is the age-old story of mankind. If you've been with us through this study of Genesis, you know that this is what Adam did in Eden. Do I really have to listen to God? Does he have a right to put limits on me? Does he have a right to decide the best way to enter eternal life? He's saying it comes through obedience. But it seems to me that I will know life and death either way. And I will go my own way. We all must wrestle with God. Sooner or later in our lives, we will fight God. Some of you can share your testimony of when that happened. When you stood there and fought with God, when you in prayer were on your knees wrestling with him, when you were before his word open on your lap, saying, is this really what it requires of me? And do I really have to submit to this? Those of us who are blessed to wrestle with God in this lifetime and come to a point of submission find that he does not destroy us as enemies. He does not kill us. He does not defeat us and humiliate us. We had three boys. And with three boys, there were a lot of wrestling matches. And there were a whole lot of them where dad was involved. Now, these boys, I don't know what it was like for you. When I was a boy, every stick, every empty cardboard tube from wrapping paper was a sword. But in the lifetime of my boys, they were all lightsabers. We had a lot of lightsabers in our house. Many of them were Christmas gifts. They actually lit up. They made sounds. And we had a lot of lightsaber duels. And I would get down on my knees on the boys' bedroom floor. Thankfully, it was carpeted at the time. And I'd get down on my knees, and they would attack. 
Sometimes I would be the teacher, the Jedi master, and they'd be the Padawans, and I was teaching them how to fight with their lightsabers. Other times, I was Darth Vader, and they were the Rebel Alliance, and I must die. And though I was bigger, stronger, faster, taller, had more arm reach than they had, I lost most of those lightsaber duels. Because I was a father who loved those boys and saw an opportunity for them to experience something important. Jacob wrestles with God. He's afraid of Esau. He's concerned about facing his brother. But he encounters God instead. Now come back next week. He will face his brother. And I don't want to give away how that plays out. But right here we see a most mysterious and bizarre passage. Let's go back through and walk through some of the details so that we understand the setting and the scene. There is a richness to this that I don't want us to miss. But then let's see how it circles back around and brings us to this question of wrestling with God. As Jacob heads out, we see him encounter angels. We're not told how he knows they're angels, but somehow he knows they are. I will remind us, though, that in Hebrew, the word angel that's translated angel literally means messenger, hence the way I read it, that these are messengers from God. And these two verses, verses 1 and 2, kind of feel disconnected from the rest of the chapter. You kind of look at them and go, okay, that happened, so what? And I suspect that if you were were part of the editorial staff of Reader's Digest and looking to condense the Bible, you might get rid of those two verses. But they set the scene for everything that follows. For right up front, Jacob encounters messengers from God. I wonder if he caught the irony. What does he do in verse 3? In anticipation of a confrontation with Esau, he sends out messengers to Esau. God is sending out messengers to Jacob. And there's a confrontation coming with God. I don't know if Jacob saw that or not. We shouldn't miss it. For it is a sign of God's willingness to send out his message in advance of the final showdown with him. Those who will one day stand at the judgment seat and imagine to themselves, well, I'm just going to plead ignorance. I never knew. I wasn't told. God is going to say, be quiet. Shut up. Sit down. I sent my messengers. They were called the prophets. They were called the apostles. They were called your Christian neighbors. And they told you. And you had every opportunity to know. In advance of the confrontation, messengers are sent out. But the bigger point, the Mahanaim, that two camps, becomes a theme through the chapter. There are going to be the two camps of Jacob. There's going to be the camp of Jacob and the camp of Esau. There are two camps. And we must understand that this is playing out on two levels. There is the earthly human level of what is happening. And there is the spiritual divine level 
of what is happening. That's why this, these, this note of an encounter with an angel camp is mentioned right up front. So that the reader will know that throughout all of this, God was there. And it was playing out on two different levels. Jacob moves forward, heading back to Canaan, realizes he's got to deal with Esau. He sends his messengers out. His messengers come back with a report that Esau is headed your way. Somehow he's caught wind of the fact that you're coming. Esau is headed your direction, and he has with him 400 men. You may recall that when Abraham set out to to recapture Lot, to rescue Lot, he took a militia of 400-some-odd men with him. History and archaeology tells us this was a pretty typical size militia in that time period. This is a fighting force. This is a small army. Now, Jacob himself is a very wealthy man. Perhaps he can muster 400 men. But Esau's men will not be encumbered with wives and children and flocks and servants. Jacob's in trouble. And he is afraid. And he knows it. And so he divides himself into Mahanaim, two camps. One here and one over there. Esau doesn't know how many people exactly are part of Jacob's household. Finding one, he will destroy it, he will go home satisfied, and the other will survive. It's a good plan. But then our Jacob, the guy who has had good plans all his life, the guy who had a clever way to get the birthright from his brother, the guy who came up with a clever way to steal the blessing from his father, He's come up with a clever way to hide part of his clan, but do you catch what happens next? He prays, verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father. When Abraham was faced with a similar threat to his life, do you recall him praying? He didn't. At least we have no record that he did. What did Abraham do? Abraham prostituted his wife, first to Pharaoh and then later to Abimelech, so to save his own neck. Do we realize that Jacob here compares very favorably to his grandfather Abraham? He prays. In fact, it is the longest recorded prayer in all of Genesis. Longer than any prayer of Noah, longer than any prayer of of Joseph, longer than any prayer of Abraham. And that's not a mere fact of trivia, but rather that is the author's emphasis upon the importance of this prayer. He takes an action, but he also turns to the God of action. And you notice how he prays. God, I'm in this pickle because you sent me here. I'm facing this mess. Esau, my brother, is bringing 400 men to kill me, and it's because I obeyed you, Lord. You told me to come back to the land of Canaan. You promised me that it would go well with me. You promised me that my offspring would outnumber the sand on the seashore. This is not a prayer of arrogance or insolence. This is the prayer of faith. God, I'm trusting your word. I'm hoping you will be true to yourself. That's where I stand. That's where I am. 
If you want your prayers to always get a yes from God, then pray this way. Pray God's promises back to him. Pray God's word back to him. For when you go to a faithful God and say, be who you claim you are, the answer will always be, I am. Jacob gets up the next morning after wrestling with God in prayer. Wrestling with God the way Job did. Remember how Job gets angry at God? God, come down here and give me an answer. Come down here and explain to me why this is happening to me. I didn't do anything to deserve this. Come tell me why this has happened. Remember Habakkuk? Oh, Lord, the people are not righteous. There is great wickedness in Jerusalem. You're not doing anything about it. God says, oh, yes, I am. The Chaldeans are on their way to flatten Jerusalem. And Habakkuk is like, but that's not what I meant. That's not how I wanted you to deal with it. And he wrestles with God in prayer. Jacob has wrestled with God through the night in prayer. And he gets up the next morning and he implements another plan. He got through that night. He divided them into two camps. Esau didn't attack during that night. Now he sets forth an actual plan to make things right. I'm surprised at how many people look at this plan and speculate that it, um, th- that it was somehow a threat. I don't think it was exactly a threat. You say, well, how do you see this as a threat? Well, first of all, let me tell you, these numbers here are uh, uh, huge numbers. The quantities of animals being sent. You know, when you go to the local hospital, you see the, uh, the new wing of the hospital, and it's, you know, the, the Smith Family Cancer Center. Well, you know, whatever that, you know, $50 million or whatever the Smith family gave to get that place named after them, you know that they didn't give everything they had. In other words, if that's the amount they can afford to give away, they're pretty seriously wealthy. So it is with this picture here. If Jacob can send this quantity of gifts, these many camels and this many sheep and this many rams and this many bulls and this many, he is a phenomenally wealthy man. And some have said that he is threatening Esau. Look how rich I am. You'd better not attack me. I'm not sure that's what's going on there. I think Jacob has always shown himself to be a very practical man, and I think he's being here very pragmatic. He's simply saying to Esau, listen, if you attack me, it's going to cost you. Even if you win. If you'll make peace then you will come out a wealthy man, for I have much to give you. And I will remind you that it is our Lord who said, if your enemy sues for your tunic, give him your cloak also. It was our Lord's disciple Peter who said, do not repay evil for evil, but give kindness instead. And it was Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount who said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And it is a biblical doctrine to repay what you owe. Recompense is appropriate. Jacob is no longer the scheming, conniving man that we saw many chapters back. 
He's still a clever man, separating the herds one from another, kind of takes the steam, kind of takes the wind out of Esau's sails. The first herd shows up, and Esau's like, okay, God, whatever, fine, I'm going to keep going. The next herd, and then the next, and by the end, Esau's just going, yeah, whatever, this, this is a lot of gifts. I mean, you come on, where's Jacob already? There's a cleverness there. But it's not conniving, it's not scheming, it's not underhanded, it's not deceptive. He's still a clever man. But now he's repaying what he owes. There's a biblical wisdom at work here. Another day goes by and Esau does not attack. And they've reached the Jabbok River. The Jabbok River, um, uh, the Zarka River today, uh, is on the east side of the, of the Jordan. And it, fe- it runs east to west and feeds into the Jordan. And in all likelihood, um, they have crossed the, the ford of the Jabbok and realized that they're in a bad spot. And it seems that Jacob's sending them back across to the north side. Uh, Esau is going to be coming up from the south from Edom. And so it appears that Jacob is putting his clans, his groups, back over on the north side of the river so that during the night the river will be between them and the approaching Esau. And for whatever reason, he's left by himself on the south bank of the Jabbok River. This is a, uh, uh, a rugged area. This is a uh, uh, fairly severe gorge. It's a very fitting setting for what's about to happen. I'll also point out that this is a time in the, in, the, in the world when darkness meant darkness. Our son Caleb, some years back, was stationed not all that far from the Jabbok River, and he was struck how even in our modern electrified world, it was dark at night there. And that's going to be important for us as well. And so Jacob is on the south bank of the Jabbok River, and he's left alone. And we're not sure why. We're not told if he was just waiting to make sure everybody got across, and he got attacked before he could get over himself. What, did he stay over there to be a scout? Was he hoping to intercept Esau and maybe head things off? We don't know. But there he is in the darkness, and he is attacked. And it's so dark that he does not know who is attacking him. And the thought probably crossed his mind that it could just be your average highwayman. It could just be a robber. And they wrestle through the night. When I went out for high school wrestling before my first match, the assistant coach pulled a bunch of us freshmen aside and told us that a six-minute high school wrestling match will be the longest six minutes of your life. I don't know. I rarely made it to the full six minutes. But it is a brutal time of every fiber of your body straining. These men fight through the night. They are utterly spent. And as dawn is breaking, a light is going on in Jacob's mind. And he realizes this is not a highwayman. This is not a robber. Robbers are looking for the easy score. They're looking for the quick knockoff and steal, smash and grab. That this man has continued to fight through the night means this can only be Esau. And as the light is coming up, the man says, let me go. And Jacob says, nope. This is it. This is the last time we're doing this, brother. Bless me. 
I'm not letting you go until we make peace. We are either going to keep fighting until one of us overcomes the other, or we are going to make a lasting peace. Bless me. And then his opponent says, what is your name? That's a little odd. For Esau would know Jacob's name. And this is where our translations can help. Can, we, we can lose sight of what's going on in an English translation. For we must be reminded of what Jacob means. Heel grabber. Now, heel grabber is an idiom that still doesn't mean much to us. But if you think about it, it's picturesque. If you're grabbing somebody's heel, what are you doing? You're tripping them up. You're keeping them from walking along. You're causing them to stumble. It was an idiom that meant you were a cheater, a conniver, a schemer, a trickster. And the attacker says to Jacob, what is your name? He's not asking for identification in the simple way that Scott identifies me. For our names don't carry with them the kind of meaning that their names did. As far as I know, I have no Scottish heritage in me, and yet I'm called Scott. But Jacob was a trickster. And he must confess who he is. I am heel grabber. I'm the trickster. I'm the one who causes people to stumble. And he owns who he is, or at least who he was. And in that moment, in that moment of wrestling, of striving, he comes to grips with who he is. And blessing follows. You're not that anymore. That's not who you are moving forward. No longer shall your name be called trickster. You are God fighter. Israel, the one who wrestles with God. As name upgrades go, that's a pretty good one. To go from conniver and schemer to godfighter? As intimidating names go, godfighter is pretty high on the list. You have wrestled with God. You are Israel, godfighter. And it dawns on him, even as the light is dawning. Grandfather Abram was changed to Abraham. Grandma Sarah, Sarai, was changed to Sarah. And it was God who changed their names as he changed their lives. And he realizes he's fighting with God. But he wants his own confirmation and he says, Who are you? What is your name? And the man replies, Don't ask what you already know. You know 
I am, I am. And Jacob rejoices in having met God face to face. Having wrestled with God and having come to grips with who he is and who God is. You see, if you wait until the judgment day to have this confrontation, if it's only on the last day that you finally say, I am but a mere man and you are God. If it is on that day that you say, yes, I realize now that I am a sinner and you are the Savior. You will be speaking the truth. You will be glorifying the one who is to be glorified. But it will cost you everything. Yes, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And yes, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But those who wait to that final confrontation do so at an eternal cost to themselves. What has God put in your life that you're wrestling with? What can you look back on that has happened in the past, that time perhaps at a summer camp, that time perhaps in a worship service, a time perhaps in a Bible study, the time of difficulty at work or the time of difficulty in your marriage in which you wanted to yell at God, what is going on? Why is this happening? And if it resolved with, you are God and I am not, and I will accept that. And let that be a moment of praise. Let that be for you a reason to rejoice. For in that moment of confrontation with God, in that moment of wrestling with God, He spared you. He did not destroy you as He could have. And he changed you as a result of it. If you have never gone through that, if you have said, well, I can't yell at God, go read the book of Job. If you have said, well, I I can't be disgusted with God's plan, go read the book of Habakkuk. If you've said, I can't possibly disagree with anything God says, just you know, study the, the Apostle Peter. God is bigger than your concerns. He is stronger than your doubts. He can withstand whatever it is that you might want to throw at him. And you need to have this confrontation. You need to come to grips with who he is. You need to go at it with God. And see that he really is big enough, strong enough, powerful powerful enough, not only to take what you have to give, but to keep all of his promises, to defend you against any other attackers, to be your shield and your very great reward.
The trickster Jacob meets God and it changes his life, shown by a change of name. We must all wrestle with God and have our lives changed. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see the obstacles in our lives, the things that cross our paths, the attackers, as opportunities to come to grips with who you are and who we are. When we see ourselves as sinners, as mere human beings, let us also see you as the God who can and will protect us. The God who keeps his promises, the God who is bigger than our worries and our fears. And let us recognize the grace with which you led us up from that wrestling mat. So that we can continue to live under the newness of life when you have changed us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.